Vincent Werbos, Derby. evening service so it's nice to be here. I don't often uh, get to stay on for this bit. Normally at home with those children but I've left them to my mother to put to bed tonight so hopefully all will be calm when I return. It's much nicer to be here um, than dealing with the Sunday night traumas of three children. Um, But yeah as Andy said we're working through Philippians so tonight it's Philippians 2 uh, verses 12 to 18, and um, it's the next, next section in it. So I hope you're, um, you've been enjoying the series, that you've got into reading through it. It's such a great book. There's so much in it, so it's fantastic to go through it all together. Uh, I'm just going to start by reading the, the passage, which I think is going to come up. Yes, great. Okay, Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I think there may have been something pointed in the fact that Phil put me on for this passage, which is about do not grumble or complain. Uh, I'm pretty good at both of those things. They come fairly naturally to me. Um, So I think he wasn't up to the challenge. Either one. I'm not sure which it is. Yeah. Yeah. I won't say... (laughs) I'll say the wrong thing before I've even got started. Um... But I wonder whether, and I often think this, um, maybe as I'm stood at the school gate or wherever it is, surrounded by um, people, and I think, is there anything about me that makes me stand out? Is there anything about me that makes me different to those around me? Would anybody know that I'm a Christian through a bit of conversation or whatever? Is there anything that makes me shine? This passage talks about and calls us to shine like stars in the sky, which is such a beautiful image. And it's something that I would long to do, but I'm not sure how well I actually do it. I wonder whether people would notice within any of us the difference that Jesus makes. his power and his transformation in in amongst us. And for some people um, who have had that dramatic transformation within their life, I feel it's so obvious. And that is such an amazing thing. For some of us who maybe have had a slower, longer journey, the change is slower and more and less dramatic. And so maybe it doesn't feel so obvious But tonight we're going to look at this passage and we're going to uh, look at how Paul encourages us to shine brightly. And as Christians, we are called to almost a higher standard. 
And this passage sets a pretty high standard for us. We're living in a world where there is much darkness, there is much trouble, there is much sadness, as I'm sure you are all well aware. And yet, despite all that, Paul implores us to shine. In fact, he was actually writing this from prison, where it doesn't get much darker than that. And yet, he is still full of joy, he is still rejoicing, and he is still not complaining. I think if I was in prison, I would be complaining a lot. His overwhelming desire for the, for the Philippians and for us is that we would also be full of joy and that we would be able to shine like stars in amongst the difficulties of this life. So today we're going to think about what stops us from shining. The passage starts, as we read it a, a moment ago, with one of Paul's favorite words, therefore. And uh, what that means is that what he's about to say flows out of what he's just said. So the previous section, which um, Andy preached on last week, is a beautiful description of Jesus and who he is and all that he has done. It talks about Jesus' willingness to become a servant, to take on human form, to come down to earth, to die a criminal's death on the cross, to humble himself. And then the fact that out of that, God raised him up. He glorified him so that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And so bearing all that in mind, bearing those truths within that passage, and in the light of all that Jesus has done for us, the example that he set for us, this passage then leads in to the expectation that is set upon us, the high standard that is set before us. We are called to not grumble or complain so that we might shine like stars in the sky. We might be different to the world around us. I'm going to play um, a clip from a film. It's from Coach Carter, which is one of my all-time favorite films. It's a pretty old film now. It's been um, around a while, so you may well have seen it. Um, I love it. It makes me cry every time. And um, one of the most powerful bits in it is when one of the students recites a quote that's been attributed to Nelson Mandela. Um, The film's set in L.A., and the coach is pushing his students to a higher standard. He's a a basketball coach, um, and previously, because they're good at basketball, they're allowed to get away with... um, Sloppy work standards, a bad work ethic, um, bad dress code, all of those kind of things because bar- they win basketball games. It gives prestige to the, um, to the school and that's all that anybody cares about. But the coach knows that actually in order to break the cycle that those students are likely to be in and the fact that the majority of them are likely to end up in prison... They need an education. They need to get to college. They need to get to a higher standard in their love than before. And so he pushes them, and he pushes them hard, and he sets high expectations. And lots of them can't take it. They don't want the hassle. They don't want the pressure. And so they back off, and they drop out. And there's one student in particular, and he tries to fight back, and he tries to... um, to to ignore what the coach is asking of him or not do what the coach is asking of him. Um, But really, he's desperate to be part of the team. He's desperate to be included. And all throughout, Coach Carter keeps saying to him, what is your deepest fear? And he tries to laugh it off, ignore it. He doesn't want to answer it. 
And eventually, in the clip I'm going to play, he finds his answer. And it's at the point when um, the coach has decided to close the gymnasium. There'll be no more basketball practice until the grades get to the right place. And in uh, response to that, the parents and the school board have decided to um, go against him. They just want the basketball games to win. They just want the the students to be able to play basketball. They're not interested um, so much in the standards that Coach Carter wants to go for. And so he has decided to resign because he doesn't want to be in that situation. And so the clip begins as he arrives at the gymnasium to find that the lock has been taken off and the students have taken matters into their own hands. So they can cut the chain off the door, but they can't make us play. We've decided we're going to finish what you started, sir. Yeah, so leave us be, coach. (laughs) Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same as we are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. Sir, I just want to say thank you. You saved my life. Thank you, sirs. All of you. so good if you haven't watched it you must do but that clip that quote um, in the film they cut God out of it so it, the actual quote says um, you are a child of God your playing small does not serve the world there is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you we are all meant to shine as children do we were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. So good. Shining bright, standing tall, living fully alive to show the glory of God that is within each one of us brings a brightness to this life that this world so desperately needs. And that's why Paul encourages us to shine bright so that others will see and be inspired to do the same. Um, Catherine of Siena, as was famously quoted at Prince William and Kate's wedding, said, Be who God created you to be, and you will set the world on fire. Well, there's a challenge. Who doesn't want to set the world on fire?
We can bring a life and a light to this world when we allow ourselves to shine, when we live as children of God and we live as God created us to be. So what does this passage tell us about how we should shine? I think there's three key things, there's three points that I'm just going to go through briefly this evening. So we need to put in the effort. We need to put off the complaining and arguing. And we need to put on God's power and truth. So those are the three things that we will just run through. We need to put in the effort. Verse 12, um, my version is slightly different from what was on the screens. But it says, dearest friends, you were always so careful to follow my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, you must be even more careful to put into action God's saving work in your lives, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Be careful. Follow instructions. Put into actions. Obey. They're not necessarily words we might like to hear. They imply that we need to make an effort to work out our salvation, which is what the screen said. In my version, it said to put into action God's saving work in your lives. It takes effort. It takes um, energy to show what God has done in us. It's a little bit of a complex and debated theologically, and that is above my pay grade. But all I know is that Jesus has done it all. We are saved, full stop. There is nothing we can do to add to that. There is nothing we can take away from that. We are saved, but... We do have a responsibility to work out our salvation. Being saved means that it needs to have an impact on our lives. It's, as this passage says, with deep reverence and fear. Paul makes it very clear in his writing that, um, that, we ask that Jesus has done the saving work within us. But he also says we need to live that out. We need to put flesh on it. We need to make it visible to those around us to work out what it means to live saved for each day. That student in Coach Carter gave thanks to him for saving his life. He recognized that he'd given him a new way of living. He'd given him a new hope. He'd given him something to look forward to, a purpose in his life. And his response to that was to work hard, was to get the grades that he needed, was to put the effort in so that he could be part of that team. And our salvation is a much bigger thing. And our response to that should be even more transformational and obvious within our lives. Part of Paul's answer is that our response should be to obey God with deep reverence and fear. Those are not words that we often hear or we often consider, even actually within church settings. We often talk about God is our friend, God loves us, he cares. We need to come before God with deep reverence and fear, knowing that he is the mighty creator God. We need to follow the instructions that are given to us. And Paul talks about, um, Paul talks in that verse, in verse 12, about the fact that they followed his instructions when he was with them, and he sh- they should continue to do so even though he's not with them now. And um, for those maybe who have looked after or have had children, I don't know if you would recognize this, but I know that um, when my children are upstairs playing, 
and uh, they've been up there for a while, and maybe especially when they've got friends round, um, and you suddenly realise it has been quiet. And it's been quiet for quite a long time. And that always raises a suspicion in my mind. When it's over 10 minutes, you know they're definitely up to something that they shouldn't be. And so in those moments when you go and you check what is going on and you find that they are actually, it's always a little bit of a shock. And I can count the number of times on one hand that that has probably happened in my house. But it actually is those moments when you feel like you maybe you've cra- actually cracked this parenting thing. But it doesn't often happen. And I think Paul would probably have felt similarly if he could have seen the Philippians, how they continued to work out their salvation, how they continued to live as he had taught them and how he had given them instruction to, and how they had been so careful to do it when he was with them, and they would continue to do it when he was not with them. And it's the same for us as we grow in our faith. We do what we have been called to do. We do, we live this faith out, not because we're told to, not because someone's looking over our shoulder, not because it's what's expected of us, but because it's what we want to do, because we know what Jesus has done for us and our response is to live it out, to be obedient, knowing that God who flung the stars into space, who holds all things together, who holds this world in his hands, knows each one of us, loves each one of us, and our only response is to bow before him, knowing that he is awesome and mighty. So our ability to shine in this world depends partly on how much effort we're prepared to put into it, to work out our salvation. And to be able to obey God, we need to hear his voice. We need to be reading the word. We need to be listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We need to be listening to the people around us, to having accountability within our friendships, through prayer, through worship, through listening to what God is saying to each one of us. We have a responsibility to be awake and aware and alive to all that God is doing. So we need to put in the effort. We need to take our salvation seriously. But we also, moving on to the next bit, we need to put off the complaining and arguing, as the passage said, and that is the tricky bit. In everything you do, it says, stay away from grumbling and arguing, kid and perverse people. Well, that's pretty clear. I mean, there's no two ways about that, really, is there? And I'd love that I would be able to live in such a way that no one could speak a word of blame against me. I hate it if I feel that I've upset somebody or I've caused hurt. And that's quite a strong motivation for me to try to not complain or grumble or argue. But it's still very difficult. And actually, um, I think there's almost an innate Britishness that loves a good moan. I don't know if you're on um, Twitter or if you've heard of the um, Very British Problems, which is a a thing, a Twitter feed, uh, that I see fairly regularly and makes me laugh every time I read them. They're great quotes, and they just amazingly sum up the oddities and quirks of what it means to be British. Um, The fact that we are pretty miserable about most things, that we love a good moan, and... um, that the weather's either too cold, too hot, there's too much traffic, the prices of petrol have gone up, uh, whatever it is, we'll have a moan about it. 
Generally, it's the weather. Um, but the, the thing that makes me laugh the most is that actually what they often comment on is how most of these problems are solved by having a good cup of tea. Tea and cake, that's all I need. And it makes me realise how very British I am, which I'm not sure is a good thing. Um, but we love a good moan. It is Sometimes it's just innate within us. And if I had to think about not moaning, I'm not sure I'd have a lot to say each day, which is not a good thing. But very challengingly, um, Andy Bond, who loves a good blog, I don't know if you've noticed or if he's ever sent you any, he's constantly reading and finding these things um, and hoping that we'll all read them. He actually sent me one that I read this week, which was, uh, it was actually really helpful. Um, And it was about someone who wrote it who had given up complaining for Lent, which is a pretty big challenge. She wanted to cut out any complaining, any speaking badly of anyone, and any negativity in any form. What she had to say all Lent, I have no idea. Um, And actually, to to be fair, she was very honest, and she said she failed mostly pretty much every day. But what did come out of it for her was a realization of how ingrained negativity was and how easily it became her default position. And she gave four reasons why complaining is bad for us, which are actually quite helpful as we start to think about this. So she said it damages us physically. And there was some science in the blog that was beyond me, but um, it actually results in further feelings of frustration. And it causes physical damage. It distorts our thinking so complaining ensures that we would see the worst in a situation rather than seeing the, be- the best or seeing the people as God would see them. And it becomes a habit, so the more we do it, the harder it is. And finally, it's also unhelpful for those around us. So those who might hear us complaining, it's then very easy to She does recognise, um, and as, uh, as we do in, in covering this topic, that life is never going to be perpetually happy. And I know that there are so many of us who are facing difficulties and traumas and hardship. And this isn't saying that we're going to be always joyful and cheerful and a smile on our face. Because actually, in, throughout the Bible, we see there are many occasions when lament and crying out to God and desperation is what is written in those passages. And we know that that is okay. It's okay to come before God, however we feel, whatever is going on. He doesn't expect us to put um, a rosy picture on it or to cover it all up. So that is fine. I think this passage is talking more about our inclination. What is our instinct to? Is it to negativity or is it to positive? Is it to seeing the good in the situation or is it to seeing the worse or how it could all turn out horribly wrong? I saw a definition the other day about um, complaining that said if, it's, if you don't have a solution to the problem, it's just whinging. And I live with um, three girls who are very good at whinging. And I know what it's like to be around um, whinging children in particular. It's not a pleasant experience and you wouldn't really wish it on anybody. Olivia, who's our youngest daughter, has declared that for Lent she is going to give up asking for things when we go to shops. 
which is actually quite a challenge because she's the most materialistic of the bunch and she loves something new. She's a little bit like a magpie. Anything shiny and new, she'll gather it up. And anywhere she goes, generally any house she visits or any shop, she just wants something. She'll take something. So if she ever comes over to your house, just watch out. She'll have a bag. She'll have picked something up. I called her a little klepto the other day and she, she kind of, she seemed to understand what I was talking about. It was a bit worrying. Um, but she, we go into a shop and she will just ask for anything. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether she needs it or not. She just wants something, something new, something shiny and bright that she can um, pick up and hold on to. And she will cry and shout and stomp her feet until I give in, which probably happens quicker than it should when we're in a shop. So whether she can break this habit, we'll see over this Lent how she gets on. But she has obviously realized that I have told her off a number of times for whinging at me and for whining and has recognized that this is something that she needs to learn to stop doing. And it's probably the same um, with many of us. Can we imagine what it would look like if there was no complaining in our families, in our workplaces, in our student halls, in our church? How good, how different would life be? Unrecognizable, I think, but also very encouraging. And this verse encourages us to live clean and innocent lives so that we are a contrast to the dark and perverse world we live in. Which actually is as difficult as stopping complaining and grumbling is. It seems quite a contrast to say that if we change this, if we change our words, if we change the way that we view the world to a more positive way, that is going to have an impact on the crookedness and perversity and twistedness. And I think it even said depraved in the NIV version, which are, I mean, those are pretty strong words. By us standing out, by us shining like stars, In amongst the darkness, we will make a difference. People will notice, and we will be a contrast to those around us. It will be noticeable. So it's difficult, but it's simple. It's very straightforward what Paul is telling us to do. Whether we can actually do it is another matter. So we've said that it takes effort. It takes hard work. We need to put in the effort We need to put off the complaining and arguing. And I'm sure we'd all agree with that. The challenge is how. How do we do this? How do we change our habits and patterns? And that's the third point we put on. God's power and God's truth. It is only through him at work in us and through the power of his Holy Spirit changing us. He changes our hearts and minds so that we see situations as he sees them, so we see people as he sees them, so we see them positively rather than negatively. Romans 12 verse 2 talks about the transforming of our minds. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God can do this. He is able and he, he is able even to change our desires. We might not even want to change or recognize the need to change, but actually he's going to give us the desire to want to change so that we see his solutions 
rather than um, the problems. God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. That is how we change, and that is how we shine in this dark world. Ephesians 6 is a a famous passage that you may well know, and it talks about putting on the armor of God. And that is what we need to do. We need to put on the armor of God to enable us to stand strong, to stand firm, enable us to be different, to shine bright in this world, to live as God intends us to live. We need to daily ask God to fill us with his spirit to give us the power we need. The Philippians passage goes on to talk about holding tightly to the word of life. God's word and truth, when we take hold of it, when we let it sink in deep, when we regularly read our Bibles, when we regularly pray, he enables us to change our patterns, our habits, our negativity. And in 1 Peter 2 it says, this is what it says, you must pay close attention to what the prophets wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and light breaks through the gloom and the morning star arises in your hearts. God's word is a lamp shining in dark places. It brings light to our darkness. It lights our way and it brings light to this dark world. We need to hold tight to his, world, his word and the light that comes from it that enables us to be a light that shines. So we need to shine. And if we're shining, how bright are we shining? Do we stand out? The stars are always there. They're always in the sky, but we can't always see them. When the clouds cover them at night, then they can't be seen at all. They're not making any difference. There's no light. We know they're there, but we can't see them. And likewise with us, are there clouds covering our light, covering us so that we can't shine? What stops us from shining brighter? Are we able to work hard to put in the effort to work out our salvation? Are we able to seek God, to hear his word to us, to know him so that we can be obedient? Are we able to put off the complaining and grumbling, the negativity in our lives so that we can live clean and innocent lives in a world that is far from clean and far from innocent? And are we putting on God's power, allowing God's truth and word to work within us, to give us the desire and the the ability to change? When we do these things, the clouds lift and the stars are visible. And we can shine bright. The, ver- the um, verse in 2 Peter goes on to say that the day dawns, light breaks through the gloom, the cloud is lifted, everything else falls away, and we see the one true light. The beautiful morning star arises and shines his light fully into our hearts. When we look at Jesus, when we keep our eyes fixed on him, it enables us to have that light within us and to shine bright. I'm just going to finish with one final story. I think I've slightly overrun. Um, But there's a story that's been told um, about Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island and many other classics. And apparently one evening when he was a young child, as dusk was turning to darkness, he had his face pinned up against the window in his nursery, desperately looking out, 
not able to move away, watching so clearly what was going on. He was fascinated by the lamplighter who was coming down the street. And in those days, there was not electricity. It was um, a man who came to each gaslight, climbed up his ladder with a burning wick and set the gaslight ablaze so that it would stay alight for the rest of the night, climb down his ladder and move on to the next light. Seeing that he could not move away from the window and he was watching so intently, his nanny asked him, Robert, what in the world are you looking at? And with great excitement, he exclaimed, look at that man. He's knocking holes in the darkness. So as we clear the clouds in our lives, as we get rid of the fog and the gloom and the mist, I pray that we are able to shine bright this week. And in so doing, may we also be knocking holes in the darkness. Amen.